This is a Lip Media Podcast. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Was that okay? Yeah, that was great. Yeah. It's the 24th of May, 2019. I'm Simon Copland. And I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme. And this week, we're talking about Game of Thrones and critiques of pop culture. But first, we wanted to get a couple of little admin things out of the way. We've had a little bit of feedback recently about the fact that we now have ads on the podcast. And we realise that it's not something that we've talked about at all it just kind of happened and and we didn't say anything so it's worth addressing why that's happened and i don't know justifying it i i guess so we the reason we have ads is is that we've joined uh lip media uh, a, a podcast network and that was kind of part of the deal there uh it it, it generates a, a smaller amount of revenue for us as well which is I mean, essentially, the very straightforward justification for us doing it. This is something that Simon and I do on our own time. Uh, it's very time-consuming, and as much as we enjoy doing it, we need uh, some financial incentive to continue doing it. Yeah, yeah, it costs money and time to do it, so uh, some uh, some help is is useful and required. Yeah, and I think uh, despite the fact that we are a podcast that frequently critiques, well, certainly capitalism broadly, but uh, the ways that various businesses operate and that sort of stuff. It's important to say that whilst all of that is true, we also obviously live in a society where we need money to live. And I think both Simon and I feel very strongly about the fact that um, having some compensation for, for what we're doing is important and, and adds a, a, a way of doing that. And I guess maybe we could say as well is that uh, this is also why we set up the Patreon uh, as a way to help provide some support for the podcast. And, you know, if uh, I guess the Patreon gets uh, bigger and better, it sort of helps uh, us, uh, we, you know, we won't, we won't need the ads as much. So, uh, you know, one way to support the podcast uh, is to uh, subscribe to the Patreon uh, and that can help us in this way as well. Uh, and we can sort of, you know, I think we'd both prefer to be getting some of that money from from subscribers and supporters uh, and our community rather than from, from ads. But at this point in time, this is uh, where we're at. Also, kind of a, an, an odd thing perhaps to, to talk about, given that we're at episode, I don't know, 60-something or 50-something or wherever at, 58. Uh, we stopped putting numbers on them recently, so I've lost track. It's right in the script there, Ben, that we're looking at. Oh, really? Uh, we have got a lot of new listeners recently, thanks in large part to having joined Lit Media, and thought it would be good to just talk about what the podcast is broadly, what people should expect from it, and what we're trying to do with it. I, I worry sometimes that with a name as general as Queers, although I do still really like the name of our podcast, people might jump on and, and think that we are claiming to be representative of queer culture somehow or something like that, and and it's just really not what we're trying to do at all. I think if I were to sum up what the podcast is about and what I think we're trying to achieve with it, it's a critical take on queer politics and culture. So Simon and I come at it from, I think, quite a 
uh, hopefully a self-critical lens, certainly, but a uh, we're, we're trying to question our own positions on things, question other kind of widely held positions on things, and really try to come at each topic from the position of not necessarily having really firm views and trying to feel out what our views might be. Yeah, this is like a really, it's a discussion podcast, and this is why we, we focus on one theme every every fortnight, uh, as it gives us a space to really go into something in depth, and to do so often coming out with more questions than we have answers. We're not here to provide definitive uh, answers on political topics or cultural topics. We sort of go in with questions and see where we end up and quite frequently end up in places that neither of us would have expected by the end of a conversation. Which to me is the the, the fun of doing the podcast and, and certainly embodies of a, a, a type of critique that I really like, which is one that's a bit, hopefully a bit vulnerable, uh, a bit open to change and is really about dialogue and 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 re- relentless sometimes overly relentless self-examination rather than uh, espousing really deeply held views and and hanging on to those so that is i think something that makes us quite different from a lot of queer themed podcasts out there and it's something that i'm i'm happy that we're doing me too so keep listening if you've jumped on board in the last month or so we're, we're very glad to to have all these new folk and hope you're enjoying what we're doing Game of Thrones ended its final season this week, and it has been a controversial one. The last season of the show has been criticised heavily for its writing, character development, and more, with one strand of this focus being on its treatment of female characters. I have been watching Game of Thrones with a group of friends every week this season. In fact, it's a group of friends in which we had uh, previously watched all of the previous seasons in the lead up to the last season. Oh my goodness. Uh, And I have to admit that I am slightly obsessed with the show uh, and really enjoyed it. Uh, And with my friends, I've been thinking a lot about the criticisms of this season uh, and we've all found ourselves a little frustrated by them, I have to admit. But at the same time, I found them interesting too, particularly the level of investment people have placed into the characters and the perceived failings of the storytelling. So to continue my obsession today, I've pushed Ben into talking about the season (laughs) uh, with a particular view to examine uh, what the critiques of the show say about modern day responses to pop culture. So while Game of Thrones is a starting point here, today we want to talk about critiques of pop culture more generally. In particular, we want to talk about what responsibility pop culture franchises like Game of Thrones have to their audiences, and in turn, whether pop culture has a responsibility to depict certain views of the world. So Simon, given uh, you're the Game of Thrones obsessed one here, you said you found yourself frustrated at the criticisms of this season. Why? So I think we should start with a little warning that this episode is dark and full of probably... Well, this episode is probably going to be dark and full of spoilers. Uh, So if you haven't seen the last season of Game of Thrones... That's a Game of Thrones reference. It is a Game of Thrones uh... reference. I'm up with with pop culture. (laughs) You have seen the last season, haven't you, Ben? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, if you haven't seen it, uh, be, be aware that you might want to go and finish it off before we get to get through this discussion. Um, but I figure everybody, you know, if you've been on the internet 
uh, between now and you know what came out on Monday, you have already been spoiled. So uh, really, there's there's you know when we're not diving into into too dark territory here so many um, so many memes yes yeah, so many memes so much discussion so much uh so many news headlines uh the the guardian even had a live blog of the last episode uh oh which is something that i find fascinating about game of thrones is about how much of a phenomenon it was uh, and it remains to be i've never seen in my lifetime at least as a, a pop cultural phenomenon that is so large and that has sort of in, you know uh taken up so much energy and investment from people and it's one of the things i find really interesting about it but i think i could split the critiques of the uh show into two uh at least two dominant themes that i've seen around uh around the show and the first one i i totally agree with in many ways and that was that the last season and probably that season seven as well uh was in many ways too rushed um but i think the second one uh, the second sort of strand of critiques I found really interesting was this kind of a right that viewers felt that they had that the Game of Thrones depicted a world uh, that they wanted to see, and I think, and I think this 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 played out as well um, really strongly with a lot of critiques of how the female characters were treated in the show, and this I found found really interesting. There was an expectation, you know, Game of Thrones has actually been spoken about by many as being a sort of feminist type of show, a very lots of very strong leading female characters. Uh, and women who sort of buck trends in many ways. Uh, and there was this strange, for me, perspective of this clash between the perception of a, a de- you know, a desire for a depiction, depiction of a world in which these female characters came out on top uh, and the realities of the show itself in which these female characters often don't come out on top of things. Uh, and so in particular, um, you know, in the end, Daenerys Targaryen, uh, there was a lot of critiques of the shift in her character trajectory uh, in which she ended up sort of going mad is sort of what in the second last episode and destroying King's Landing, the main the main capital city with her dragon. And there were a lot of critiques that, that you know, that this was not realistic to her character de- development, which I don't agree with, but also that it made the show... Uh, sort of become less feminist in its approach because the depiction of a mad woman was not something that was very progressive in this way. And there was a lot of anger at how she was depicted uh, throughout the show. And I think that that, those two criticisms at the end I found really interesting because it sort of had this uh, demand of a requirement that that the show do what it's what the fans wanted and that it has a responsibility to the fans but also that it has a responsibility to depict certain views of the world and and that those certain views should be sort of progressive in many ways and i think that this is something that i see running through a lot of threads of critiques of pop culture and that was why i was really interested in it um because i found that i find that really frustrating uh because i think that the the demand to have a, a, a depiction of a world that is somehow inherently progressive is does not doesn't doesn't meet the reality of what the world is and what pop culture can do in in highlighting in creating good stories actually and just creating good stories. Sure, I mean I would agree with that final point, but I think my my take on the final season of Game of Thrones was very very different. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen some of the critiques. I've certainly seen some of the critiques you're talking about about other things, but I haven't seen so much of it around Game of Thrones. I didn't like the final season. My relationship to the show, I I read the books years and years and years ago before the show started and then uh, watched the show and dropped off uh, in about 
after about season four, I was just struggling a bit with the violence of it, and I think particularly the sexual violence, which is something I'd, I'd like to come back to. Yeah, sure. I think that's important. Not, not so much, not necessarily just the depictions of it in the show, but the fact that I couldn't bring myself to watch it because it, 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 it can be quite gratuitous at times. For me, the final season didn't work, and I, I've read a really great, uh, the only thing, the only kind of take I've read on it, which I thought, really reflected my feelings was in Scientific American, really, with the the stupid headline, The Real Reasons Fans Hate the Last Season of Game of Thrones, yeah, uh, of which course. is a terrible season. But um, it, it, I think, really captured a, a terrible headline, rather, but I think really captured what I, what I think. And the article basically argues that what had made the show really compelling up until season six, I guess, seemed, I mean, I haven't, there are a bunch of seasons in the middle that I still haven't actually watched, but... Oh, that's uh, interesting. The consensus, yeah, but I sort of know, I, I, I kept vaguely up to date with what was going on, so I didn't feel like I'd been missing anything. But people seem to say that season seven is where it really became a different show. The article argues that the reason the early seasons had been so compelling, and this reflects why I enjoyed the book so much, is that it's a rare story that is really invested in institutional and structural storytelling. So at its heart, I think Game of Thrones is a story about the kind of relentless violence of institutions and the ways that uh, things like war and violence are the products of these big structural institutional forces that grind everyone beneath them and in the face of which individuals can only... You know, their choices are very constrained. It's not that individuals don't matter, but that you're kind of set up against these massive institutional forces. Like something like, like all of the big plot points in the books in the show, you can say, uh, it's like this big kind of Rube Goldberg machine. Like each thing's hap- each thing happens because the thing before it happened. Yeah. You know, yep. the Red Wedding happened because, you know, the phrase had felt like the Starks had been looking down on them for generations and because Rob, didn't go through with a promise to marry someone and he promised to marry someone because they needed to get across a bridge at a certain time and they needed to get across a bridge at a certain time because they were fighting a war and the war started because of Ned Stark getting killed and Ned Stark getting killed. You can go back to episode one and say, you know, Ned Stark, don't go south to King's Landing and none of this will happen. For sure, but even further back and say, you know, like there's no point that you can go far enough back and say that this is the starting point because ultimately it's all part of the same system and structure. And I think that that's kind of what what makes the show really interesting. What this article argues, and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, is that when the show moved away from the source material of the books, it seemed like the showrunners fell back on the way that Hollywood usually knows how to do storytelling, which isn't sociological as it had been in the early stages of the show and in the books, it became individual and psychological, which is a really, uh, which is the kind of standard mode for storytelling in, in Hollywood and is why we saw a shift from, yeah, I guess the kind of intricacies of how each event developed out of each other event and a shift towards a focus on the kind of arcs of individual characters in the show. And the author argues that even though a lot of the plot points in the final couple of seasons, it's highly likely that they they are what George R. R. Martin, the author of the books, intends to happen. Um, well, that's that's been said. He's, he, he told them what was going to happen at the yes, end. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Because the focus of the storytelling shifted, the justifications for getting to those story beats weren't clear and didn't quite make sense. And so I feel like 
something like Danny burning down King's Landing is a good example where on paper it works. Like on paper I get why she would do it and I see how the show had been trying to build to that, but it just didn't sell it because it had moved away from this, as as this article argues, this kind of structural mode of storytelling. So they weren't, it just didn't justify these kind of big uh, events in, in structural and institutional terms as it had uh, previously. It all came down to individual decisions made by particular characters at certain moments. I think the same is true of John deciding to kill her, for example. Like, there's an inevitability to all of the big moments of the show early on, and these just felt like individual characters making individual decisions in the moment. Mm, I have to think about that a little bit more, but I'm not quite sure I agree with it in all instances. Um, I think that, I mean, I think there was an inevitability to Danny burning down King's Landing. I think that they, what was interesting to me was the explanation of it at the end that of this sort of measure of this sort of, um, you know, they, the showrunner said that she sort of made this snap decision when, when it went on, on Drogon and, and I, and, I, and I didn't buy that. That I certainly didn't buy. I feel like it was a calculated, you know, you know, it would have been more more of a, a, a sale to say it was a calculated decision, a decision she felt she had to make because that was the only way that she could win. Uh, but again, that, it's like, it's like I get that that's in theory how it could have played out. Mm. And in the books, I can imagine it playing out that way. But I think on screen, that's not what we yeah, no, saw no, this is, this it is looked what, like a snap judgment yeah and that that, that is a critique i certainly have because i think that the decision makes sense you know that the action makes sense and i was willing to sort of sacrifice that's that snap decision approach to to because i think that the action makes sense uh, i don't agree with the like i didn't like the way that they explained the decision or the way that they, 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 they depicted it but to um, me the show early on is all about the explanation like it's all in yeah, the justification yeah. but i think what i've also seen is uh, so what I've seen that the critiques that I've found most interesting and the ones that I've I've really disagreed with were people who couldn't understand Danny ever doing that ever and I you know actually there was a, yeah, a video yeah. a video I watched um, of um, uh, the senator from the United States uh, Kirsten Jellybrand you know sometimes they have these videos of people you know of, of you know she's a presidential candidate and uh you know they have these videos of people talking about things that you know behind the scenes you know having a discussion about a random thing and she was discussing game of thrones and she was like i can't believe that danny would ever do that throughout her entire career she's been really about uh giving uh people uh from a lower standing a voice and having a more representative form of democracy of, of governance which she literally said and you know she would never do that to destroy these people and i'm like well have you ever watched this show like have you ever seen you know danny's entire thing is a you know is a belief in a you know in a basic in a god-given right to to rule the iron throne she is an invade an invader um you know within within with an army that comes from a different land you know she's not she's not some sort of you know she was never a somebody who was there to to fully speak for the little guy yes she she certainly was a did that in in essos you know when she was slip freed the slaves but you know she was still there was there was deliberate depictions of her as being kind of a white savior in those in those approaches totally you know, i was, mean i think that i think that her her justification for for example freeing slaves was less about her investment in emancipation than it was about her investment in the idea of herself as a savior Yes, yes. And then also this, you know, and also the capacity to build an army with those slaves, you know, that, you know, that I think that's an important factor. Yes, that too. Yeah. And I think that this is where I found it super interesting 
in, in some of these critiques and this demand to sort of, you know, I think that there was a, a people didn't like that character in particular sort of being the bad person. They wanted to have an investment in her being some, some being a savior of some, of some form. Uh, and I think that that is where I found myself being like, what well, you know, this this desire to see a world that is depicted in a particular sort of way, and a, and a world that is like a a a you know a democratic republic in the end that is read, led by Danny who has saved everybody and emancipated everybody. You know, it was never going to happen in the show, um, but it's kind of been the demands that I've seen so many people sort of get really upset about, and I found, I find that that sort of that sort of critique really interesting and and frustrating because it doesn't you know sometimes having a you know a show can still be feminist with while you know female tra- characters get don't you know get don't get treated well um you know or a show can still be feminist with a female character not ending up on the top it can as you know i think that the issue is whether you fall back into sort of sexist stereotypes uh, of that of that show, or that you know that women do these things because they're women, and I and I don't feel like the show fell into that trap, um, at least from my perspective. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Yeah, again, I agree, but I I can forgive a lot of those sorts of reactions, at least in the case of the final season of Game of Thrones, I think in part because the storytelling, as I said, took such a radical left turn in style rather than in content. But I certainly agree with you in the case of lots of other things. I mean, it's, but yeah, it's tricky though. Like I think about a show like The Handmaid's Tale, for example, which has been a really big show over the past couple of years, which is another show that I got through about half a season of, and I'm a big Margaret Atwood fan and, and really, really like the book, but I just found the show too violent, too bleak, and it's not like I need a... It's not like I need a a utopia in all of my TV shows, but I also think that sometimes, and this is, I guess, almost the reverse of what you're saying, sometimes pop culture tries to defend itself, specific instances of pop culture try to defend themselves as critiques of sexism or racism or, or violence or whatever, but I think it's very easy for them in those instances, to just be that thing. Like, I watch Game of Thrones... Uh, not Game of Thrones... Well, yes, I mean, Game of Thrones as well. Like, I, I see, like, the sexual violence in Game of Thrones and go, is this a critique of how structures cause sexual violence or is it just showing me sexual violence? Like, I don't... And I don't have an answer to that, but I think I'm often just viscerally discomforted by seeing really intense violence on screen. And sometimes... I can see it being justified. Like if I think that it's really saying something really interesting or is 
I don't know, good for some other reason. Like it might just be really beautifully shot or it might be really fun or something like that. I mean, it's a kind of a weird word you choose in this context. But but like, you know, you can think about something like Kill Bill as a version of, of almost fun violence in a way. It's totally, very, it's yeah. Exactly. Over, it's dramatic and it's over the top and it's it's but it's, it's, de- it's designed to be ridiculous. Totally. That's a really great example, actually. And I, I love Tarantino films for, for that reason. I do I do find find them very fun. But watching like I had this problem with Mad Men in the early seasons although I think it became a much better show as it went along I I really struggled to watch it because I was watching it and I'm just like this just feels like sexism and homophobia it doesn't feel like critiques of sexism and homophobia and I think you can fall really on either side of that in any given instance but for me at least I think I can be quite sensitive to some of that stuff sometimes particularly on screen it doesn't bother me so much in books which is why the Game of Thrones books didn't phase me as much and and The Handmaid's Tale, the book, didn't phase me as much. But when you're translating something into sc- onto screen in particular, I think, you know, it, as a visual medium, it's inherently more explicit. And so you have to sort of do subtlety in, in other ways. It's but, interesting yeah. because you've, you've, you've pointed at, you know, Game of Thrones, Handmaid's Tale and Mad Men are all three shows that I, I, I really enjoy. Um, or enjoy is, you know, I, I, you know, I've not sure if I enjoy Handmaid's Tale, I, but I do find I get something out of it. Um, you know, I mean, it's quite like, it it makes me, it makes me quite tense. Um, but I've never, I have a very, and I, and I don't know, and I'm not critiquing your approach to this and I'm, I guess I'm wondering about this, but I have a very different relationship to violence on screen, uh, and that I, you know, I've, I, Game of Thrones is quite is is very brutal brutal, but I've never I've never once sat and felt that it was too much for me, uh, and maybe I'm just desensitized to violence on screen. I, I don't know, but I never I never felt that it was like that. I it was so much that I had to turn away. I've had to turn away because I was like tense about what was good, what was going to happen, um, but I've never felt it was too brutal in that kind of way. Sure, uh, and I feel like that's you know that's person to person. Yeah, and that's person to person. But I think there's an interesting question about. Okay, so in that instance where some something like me and I, you know, and I felt, and I, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of listened to the critiques about the the sexual violence in particular, but the, the the violence on Game of Thrones in general, and you could say the same thing about Handmaid's Tale is a, is another really good example of a show that is is very brutal and depicts, you know, uh, very openly depicts rape and and things like that in a in a really awful way, uh, and for me, I have always felt that sometimes accurate depictions of the awful stuff that happens is an important thing for pop culture to be doing. And I don't know what the line is between that and gratuitous depictions of these sorts of things. And I was thinking about what you're saying about, you know, is this a critique of sexism and homophobia or, or is it like, you know, just being sexism and homophobia? And I, sometimes and I, I, don't, all, I don't think there's a clear answer to that. Yeah, yeah. No. And sometimes I want to do shows need to actually be engaged in critique or could they just be depicting a thing, a story that happens in the world and that we take that story and create our own critique based off it, right? And so what is the responsibility for them to... What is the responsibility of pop culture to inscribe a message into what they're doing compared to telling a story about something that is happening? Now, a lot of people want to do both of those things, but if people don't want to do those things, do they have to? Do they? Do, do we really need to have that sort of that political message that comes through or the moral message that comes through? Does there need to be a moral to the story or could there just be a story? Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, I think it's a complicated question. I think responsibility is one way to think about it. I think just taste is another. Like I, I, I don't, 
Um, for a lot of these instances, I'm fine just saying, look, this isn't for me. Mm. These are the political reasons why it's not for me, but I'm not objecting to its existence. I think particularly in the case of a show like The Handmaid's Tale, I probably do have a bit more of an issue with it because it's a show that is framing itself explicitly as a feminist show. That's That's how people talk about it. And, and that that's has, how and the has creators yep. talk about it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And in, I don't think really... Game of Thrones was ever doing that from my reading. No, no. I don't think Game of Thrones is pretending to, pretending to be that. So I think that's part of it. I also am a little... Yeah, again, this is something I could go either way on, but I guess I'm a little uncomfortable about talking about whether these sorts of things are accurate depictions of things that happen in the world. And not just because they're fantasy shows... As, as these are, but because it's TV, like it, it's never going to be like, even if it was a documentary, there is still a kind of spectacular element as in yeah, of course. it is spectacle to any sort of media that we consume. That means that, you know, no media has complete verisimilitude with the real world. It's like you're making choices, you're making uh, directorial, authorial choices about how you depict something and so I've, I've never been entirely convinced, I think, by that argument, although I, I do consider it. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I guess maybe to nuance my point a little, I guess it goes down to the question. Of course, you know, people are making those those directorial decisions. Writers are making decisions about what they want to do. And I guess the question I ask is what is... Okay, so we have, you know, there are people would have different purposes for the different stories that they want to tell, and I think that I see a trend of, particularly when it comes to things like sexism and homophobia and racism in storytelling, I see a trend of a critique that demands that everything be a critique in some ways, that it be a version of The Handmaid's Tale or what The Handmaid's Tale is trying to tell us it is, a reflection on our society, holding a mirror up to our society and and demanding that we, uh, and, and critiquing our society and looking at where it could go and all these sorts of things. And I think that I I think that there are other reasons to be telling stories beyond that demand for critique. And I feel like totally fucking often, entertainment. Yeah, entertainment, or you know, or a desire, even if it's not you know realistic that it can happen, of a desire to just to tell a story that is as realistic as possible. Or I mean, Game of Thrones, of course, is not realistic, and you know, Handmaid's Tale is you know has some realism elements to it, but is not you know representative of, of a society that currently exists. Uh, you know, there is no Gilead. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, sometimes it can just be, you know, telling a fantasy story is, is, is the purpose in and of itself. Where we continuously demand that there is a political critique of some form that exists in the story, a critique of sexism, a critique of homophobia, and like, well, do, do we actually need to have that? Or could it just be a story uh, that is being told? Yeah, and this, yeah. And can we just embrace the story of it? You know, I think this and is I one take- of- I take that I take that point. I feel like it it is similar to the argument of, you know, like seeing really horrific violence on the news, for example, or seeing like footage from war zones or something. Like I think that there is value to even if it is really shocking and horrible, there is value to knowing that that is happening in the world and being forced to confront it. But even in those cases, I I don't have a really strong view one way or the other, because while I I agree with those sorts of critiques, I also wonder what is served 
from a political purpose by being forced to confront that stuff. I'm, I'm very critical, I guess, of the extent to which empathy arising from those exposure to that sort of stuff is productive, what its kind of outcomes can be. And again, like totally not that productivity needs to be, political productivity needs to be a requirement of any sort of media. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess that's just a counterbalance to the argument that it's important for us to see that stuff. Yeah, and I, I think, but I think at the same time, while I'm making my argument, I think I have spoken to multiple people who, you know, I lo- as I said at the start, I, lo- I love Game of Thrones. I, you know, I've never actually read the books, but I, I'm, you know, and I'm not a fantasy, a reader of fantasy books very much, but I am deeply considering like starting to read the books because I'm in- interested in the intricacies of it. Yeah, they're um, great. Yeah. And, um, but I have spoken to multiple people who said, I can't deal with the violence on that show. And I, that I totally understand. And there's no, I don't feel like there's a demand the interesting thing I think has been people who continue to insist on watching the show and then can't, and then are like, you know, but the violence is too much. And I was like, well, that that is the show, you know, sure, that, yeah. you know, you, you know, if you don't like the violence, don't watch the show. No one is forcing you to watch the show. Yeah, totally. You know, and, and that's that, fair. Yeah. And, and I think that that is where I find it really interesting of people who are like, you know, and there are plenty of people I know who have, who don't watch the show because they don't like the violence. And I'm like, of course, I totally understand that. I don't, you know, I was talking to some friends recently about horror movies and I'm like sort of tempted by horror movies, but I sometimes don't like the feeling of them. And, and they're like, well, you know, if you don't enjoy them, don't enjoy them. You don't, no one's forcing you to watch this pop culture, you know, these, these, these things. And there are plenty of people out there who have totally missed the Game of Thrones, you know, thing. And, you know, they're, they're fine. They're not, you know, they don't, they're not, you know, it's, it's not like this is a major issue. No, these people are socially ostracized. They have yeah. nothing to talk about in most conversations. At least in the at least in the last week or two, they certainly probably have, have struggled. But like it's that that demand that every show meet this particular sort of frame of this particular sort of political critique that I find troubling, and that I, and that's it's one of the things I found frustrating about the critiques of Game of Thrones. Yeah, and I think we see that a lot in particularly. I mean, any sort of pop pop culture that has a really intense fandom around it. You see it in video games a lot. For example, I'm a big a big a video game player and games like uh, Overwatch, which is a, a very popular first-person shooter that's bit, that's been big over the past couple of years, and it, it's kind of got a reputation for having quite a diverse cast of characters that you can choose to play. Uh, but it, it, it's also led to pretty intense demands from sections of the fan base for it to be more diverse in particular ways, or anger that the that Blizzard, the company that makes it are not doing X, Y, Z things. And yeah, I have really mixed feelings about it because part of me is like, this is a company, like why are you investing so much into what this company, whether this company is like doing good politics, what does that even mean? But it's also a huge part of a lot of people's lives. And I mean, I, I can't directly relate to that impulse, but I think I kind of understand where they're coming from. Yeah, and I think we've certainly seen that with Game of Thrones. One of the things I... I found interesting at the end was seeing people tweet things like, well, that was eight years of my life wasted or I invested so much in this and I got so little reward for it. Uh, this sort of um, investment that people put into these franchises. And I think, you know, something like Game of Thrones is such a great example of this because people did invest so much into it. and Totally. Was- and the show, and, and it's important to acknowledge that the internet is structured and designed and incentivized in ways to get us really invested in these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's like it's a bit yeah, I don't know, maybe I'm now being pushed in kind of a different direction, but I think it's it's kind of a bit rich for this 
massive machine that is all about encouraging really rabid fandoms to then go, oh, I take no responsibility for what I've created. Yeah, I don't know. But I'm not sure anybody is saying they take no responsibility for what they've created, though. I think that the problem with this, with a show like this, is that there was never going to be a way that this would have appeased every, you know, made everybody happy. You know, a friend of mine uh, who who I watch it with was like, "Well, this is what fan fiction is for, really. This is, you know, this is why fan fiction is so great because there is a space out there, out there that people can do this investment of their own and can create alternative storylines and can do it. You know, here is one version of this story that has been told. If you if you wanted to be a, a different one, go and write fan fiction, and that is a great way to sort of express those feelings." Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you would like to support the podcast, uh, maybe consider subscribing to our Patreon. Uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash queers podcast. It's a really great way to help us continue making the podcast. And there's also a range of new and exciting and different content available if you subscribe. Otherwise, if you'd like to get in touch or make a comment, you can do so through various ways on the internet. You can email us. We get lots of fantastic email at queerspodcast at gmail.com. We are at queerspodcast on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, And we also get lots of great comments and feedback on there. We have personal social media. Simon is at Simon Copland Writer on Facebook. He's at Simon Copland on Twitter. And I'm at Ben C. Riley on Twitter. You can also find the podcast on our website, queerspodcast.com. And please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And if you do, please leave us a review and rating. It really helps us with the rankings and therefore helps other people find us. Uh, you can subscribe also on wherever else you get podcasts. We're on we're on Spotify now. We're on all the all the different platforms. Too. So so check check us out. Thank you to our podcast network, Lit Media. They're really fantastic and and have been really great to us. Go and check out their other shows. They have a lot of good stuff and are doing really cool stuff. If you're keen to hear Australian queer podcast content. Finally, tell a friend. It's really the best way we have to get new listeners for the podcast. We we hear about lots of people recommending it to other people they know. So if you would like to do that, that would be lovely. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.